0: I appreciate how hard our band works normally, but I know this week I think you've had nine new songs to learn, so um, thank you guys for putting in the hard work, and uh, I hope that you enjoyed breakfast this morning. So we uh, don't do that all the time, but I think there's a lot of folks that don't really fully appreciate all the time that goes into getting ready, not just for Sunday morning, but for a special event like we have tonight. Um, I, get to, uh, I get to cheat a little bit when it comes to preaching because we've been in a series for several weeks now talking about last words. And so I've taken a little bit of um, author, uh, author, authorial license, easy for me to say, um, to, to do a couple things when we talk about last words. And, and today we come to the very last of the last words because we're in Revelation 22 the only book after Revelation is maps, and so there's nowhere else to go after this. And we come to Jesus' last, last words. And uh, here's where I've cheated a little bit. Matthew 23 were Jesus' last words to the Jewish nation. Uh, Matthew 28 were his last words to his disciples before his ascension. We come to Revelation 22, this is it. There's nowhere else to go. And um, it's, it's appropriate for us to, to put, you know, uh, appropriate weight upon Jesus's last words to his church. It's uh, found in a book that is confounded and confused many people. The book of Revelation, tons of imagery, and you certainly find that here in Jesus's final address, but it's beautiful when we begin to unpack everything that it talks about. And it starts, uh, Revelation 22, will be in verses 12 through 20, but we're going to start with verse 17 and kind of work our way back and fill in some of the gaps here. We're going to start with with a pronouncement that Jesus makes. As a matter of fact, what we see in verse 17 is that Jesus issues a gracious invitation to come to Him. That's foundational. And then we're going to find out why He he gives us reasons why it's important to come to Him. So we're going to begin in verse 17, work our way backwards, but we're going to begin with this point that Jesus as Lord makes this gracious invitation for us to come to Him. Verse 17. The spirit and the bride say, Come, and let the one who hears say, Come. And let the one who is thirsty come, let the one who desires, take the water of life without price. Now I I don't know if you've ever <clears throat> done yard work and it been so extraordinarily humid or hot that something as simple as a nice, tall, cool. Clear glass of water just seems phenomenal. There's no sugar, there's no carbonation, there's no fizzy stuff, but oh, nothing can slake your thirst more when you are parched. It's talking about this gracious invitation to take this water of life that Jesus gives that you can't find anywhere else. And there are several things that I love about this thing. When it talks about this gracious invitation, that is why we're we're gathered for worship today, is we know that God has invited us to be in a relationship with him. Not a not a religion, not a list of rules, but a relationship where we get to know him. And there's a really interesting principle that it it, it, it states here, and it's it's easy to pass over it when you just read quickly in English. It says that the spirit says, Come, and the, the bride says, Come. And then the one who hears should also say come. So there's at least three people involved in this proclamation and a fourth who is the person who is needy. <clears throat> Here's the point. When we talk about this gracious invitation, I think the idea is we immediately jump to they're talking about evangelism. They're telling sinners to come. No, that's not how that's not how it starts off. It it ends up that way, but that's not how it starts off. When the the bride when the spirit and the bride say come, that's not saying, Oh, oh wretched sinners, come to the source of life, come to the place where there is forgiveness. Come where there is the living water. The come there is a statement of longing for Jesus' return. So when they say come, there's a kind of a double entendre, a double meaning to this. The, the Spirit and the bride are like, yes, Lord, come back now. We want you to come back. And the challenge is, as we hear both the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, it's a third person of the Trinity, the bride says, come. Who in the world is this woman that they're talking about? It's the church. The the, the church adds her voice echoing the the call of the Spirit for the Lord to return. And then it says, let the individual Christian, let the one who hears, also have this longing. And here's the thing that's crazy. There are people, like if we had a prophecy conference, like we were going to have a a conference on the book of Revelation, the doors would be packed because We're thinking about some like crazy New Year's Eve party about Jesus coming back, how awesome that's going to be and all the privileges and awesomeness that's involved with that. But the desire for the Lord's return, while awesome for us who are followers of Christ, should always issue in a plea for other people to come to. It should end, eschatology should always drive evangelism. Because it says, let the one who is thirsty come. Here's here's the thing that is challenging. And and listen, Northside is um, ahead of the curve in this because Northside gives a lot of money to missions. Missions is what the church does outside of the walls for people who are not your members. We're not a social club. If we were a social club, the only people we would care about would be the people in these walls, right? Now, churches are tempted to be social clubs. Churches are tempted to be country clubs. We give a lot of money to things that happen outside. The problem is, if you took every church's budget, personnel salaries, children's ministry budgets, youth ministry budgets, food budgets, um, especially if you're Baptist, um, and then you like everything that our property costs, it it would be very easy for 99% of the church's resources to be geared on the people who are inside the doors. Does that make sense? What value does the roughly million dollars of our property here, what value does that have to people who don't attend here? And the, the point here is that the individual Christian, when they are involved in a church that is encouraging them to have God's thoughts about the world, when we are in tune with the, when, when the church, the bride, is in touch with the Spirit, then the Christian echoes This longing for Jesus to return, but not just this longing for Jesus to return, but for other people to know who He is. You think about the return of Christ, and there's a lot of people getting really crazy, psyched up about it in, in, in weird ways. It's a gloriously happy day for many. It's a terrible day for even more. And so our longing for the Lord's return should never be Divorced, and I use that word intentionally, our longing for the Lord's return should never be divorced from our desire for his name to be magnified up among more people. And so it begins with this idea of a gracious invitation. Listen, here's the deal. If the Spirit had not told you to come, if the Spirit had not told you to come to Christ, if the Spirit had not told you to come to Christ, you wouldn't be here today, right? I mean, nobody just wakes up from being a pagan or being an, uh, an atheist or being an agnostic and goes, you know what? Today would be a great day to become a follower of Christ. Nobody does that. And if they did do that, it wouldn't last. It would be hu- purely conceived from human willpower. But when the Spirit works in a person's life to woo and to draw, now something different has happened. And so it, it doesn't start out evangelistically. It starts out longingly for the return of Christ and when we Really begin to ponder the return of Christ. It makes us gracious in our invitation to other people as well. What I love is it ends with this evangelistic deal. Hey, listen, if you're thirsty, we know where you can slake your thirst. You don't have to be around, You don't have to run around the block often to know that there's all kinds of junk that people fill their life with, and it doesn't satisfy. I mean, there are people who go through serial relationships guys who have a different girl every week. And why does that need to happen? Because the last 15 in the last, you know, six weeks haven't been enough. There are people who are millionaires. And listen, if money could satisfy, we would have figured that out a long time ago. What's the tipping point where enough is enough? You know what Rockefeller said? One more dollar. One more dollar. Stuff? It doesn't. And so Jesus has the goods that everybody wants. They just don't know it yet they're satisfied with cheap imitations. And here's the deal. What I love about this is he says that if you're thirsty, come. And how does it say it? It says, come. The one who's thirsty, come. Let the one who desires to take of the water of life get it without price. Jesus here confronts our Americanism. Because what happens if you have something that everybody wants and nobody else has it? Think about this for a second. Capitalism demands that if you have the thing that everybody wants, but nobody has, that you can set the price at whatever you want because you're the only place you can get it. You got a monopoly. Jesus is the only one with the water of life. And instead of jacking the price up to line his own pockets, what does he do? He gives it away. He's a fool. He's reckless. He says, anyone that wants the water of life, which how much would you pay to know that you could have eternal life in a right relationship with God is priceless. And instead of being a capitalist, he's generous. He gives it out. Contrast that to our practice of evangelism. We're like, I have to like you enough to share the gospel with you. You know, I don't like you. I ain't sharing with you. I don't even want to be around you. Oh my goodness, how different we are from God's graciousness. It extending the invitation to be in relationship with him, with everyone. And so we know that the Spirit has to call before anything happens. And there's a whole bunch in here. For those of you that are, you know, the the Bible students and the ones that want to go deeper here, yes, this passage is talking at least in nascent form about a doctrine of election. It's been debated for centuries in churches, uh, this whole idea of election. We can't argue whether it's biblical or not because it is. It's in your word. What we cannot do is we cannot not make what is happening here a genuine offer it says whoever is thirsty whoever's outside the church not people who are in the in the church they're already in whoever's outside can come there's a legitimate sincere offer that is being made why in the world would Jesus warn people about the penalty of, of all these things if they can't do anything about it why would, there, why would we be pointed to the provision in Christ? Because the Spirit is wooing people and drawing people to Himself. And if God is involved in extending a gracious invitation to people, what's our problem? Why are we not likewise extending this gracious invitation that God has extended to us? But He doesn't stop there. Uh, he, he starts with this, hey guys, listen, um, wonderful stuff. Uh, the, come, Lord, come. Y'all come. Come. There's good stuff for you. He doesn't just stop with the gracious invitation. He offers all kinds of compelling reasons why we should respond to his invitation. We should, uh, compelling reasons that we should respond to his invitation. Now, I, in a, um, in a previous life, I worked as a college minister and, um, every weekend was a wedding when you do college ministry because like they're too busy to get married while school is in and like the minute school gets out wedding 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 I think there were multiple in one weekend one time I'm like oh my goodness I think I slept in the tuxedo for the weekend you know it just doesn't even make sense to get out of it and so when weddings come around or things like that there are uh, you know something about this don't you you write out all these invitations, and you invite people. And what happens? Like, don't, don't tell them because they're in, like, la-la land, getting married in, like, 45 days, something like that. You know, they're in la-la land. But here's the way that it works when you get the invitation. It might sit on your desk for a couple of days, and then eventually you get around to looking at your calendar. And um, hopefully you are SVP. You know, you're supposed to because they've got to buy food and decorations and all that kind of stuff. But you look, and you go, oh, I'm at the beach that weekend. So then you RSVP and say, "Hey, thank you for the invitation, but we have another obligation." Or you know, it's um, got a trip with my son. We're going to talk about important man things, and you know, I have, I have, I have an obligation already that weekend. Please consider me to be excused. Um, there are excuses that we have legitimate excuses for not responding positively to an invitation. So here's the issue: some of you think that you've responded to the invitation. Some of you know that you haven't responded to the invitation. Some of you know that you have responded to God's gracious invitation to be in relationship with him. So listen as Jesus gives these compelling reasons why people should respond to this call to come. Come, come get the water that fully satisfies. And to see the first reason we have to go back to verse 12 where he talks about the very first compelling reason is that his return is imminent and with rewards. His return is imminent. It's coming. And with his coming comes rewards. Verse 12. Behold, I am coming soon, and I'm bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. He says, Behold, which means, Hey, y'all. And then he says, I am coming. And then he modifies his coming. When is he coming? What's it say? Soon. I am coming. I am coming could be indefinite. Then he says, I am coming soon. So automatically, if you're a little bit of a cynic, you go, hasn't the church been waiting for Jesus to return for 2,000 years? So how do we deal with that? Is it going to be another 2,000 years? Is it today? Is it tomorrow? Is it next week? Is it 2020? 2030? Don't know. Here's the best illustration that I can use, and I hope that this helps. If you kind of are wrestling with this, well, I don't know that Jesus' return is really going to be soon. What if it's, like, indefinite, like, eons in the future? <clears throat> and the idea is, let's pretend my family's going on vacation. We're going to the Grand Canyon, and this is the Grand Canyon, okay? So we're, we're driving this is South Carolina way over here, um, Idaho's, like, in the balcony back that way, um, way back there. Our family's driving to uh, the Grand Canyon. We're driving. Zzz, we're heading west, heading west. We're, we're getting there. What happens if we keep driving? we drive into eternity. We go off the edge. It's not good, you know. Thelma and Louise, you know, something like that. It's not a good thing. But as all of human history is moving to this edge rapidly, I mean, we're breaking the speed limit, going there. When we get to the very last possible second, a quick right turn, and we are driving with our, with just a couple inches between our tire and the return of Christ. All of human history has run to this age and then at the last possible minute, we are we're now driving this way right along, right along the edge of the Grand Canyon, where if somebody sneezes, we're going off. You know, if there's a, a strong gust of, of wind, we're off. And that's the idea, is not that there's this long and complicated list of things that have to happen before Jesus to return. His return is imminent because we have already come 99.9% of the way. And his return could happen soon. Listen, there um There there doesn't need to be anything that happens in the nation of Islam. There isn't anything that has to happen in the nation of Israel. His return is imminent. There's not like a checklist of 50 things that now Jesus is back. Jesus wants to come back, but he hadn't checked off all the 50 list of things. No, his return is imminent. That's what imminent means. That's what balancing on the knife edge of eternity means. It's imminent. And there are some end times teachers that make it sound like if Jesus wanted to come back, he's got a whole lot of things he's got to do before it can happen. I don't think that's what the Scripture teaches. I think the Scripture teaches the imminent return of Christ. He's coming, and he's not asking for your permission. Hey, would uh, Tuesday, June 23rd at 3 p.m., would that work for you? Can you pencil me in for my return? No, he is coming when he wants to because he has authority. He doesn't need permission. He sets his own agenda. But here's the issue. Why Why would he tell us about his return being soon? There's a thing that happens, and I don't know what your hobby is. It may not even be a hobby. It could just be biology. Let's say you're into quilting or crocheting. Um, I know uh, Jason really enjoys crocheting some good socks every once in a while. You know, uh, big hobby of his. He's, he, he's into it. Uh, Wurtz has got a whole collection of that kind of stuff. Um, maybe you do woodworking, or <laughs> maybe you do, I, I don't know, you work with wood. You, you have a hobby. You, you, you enjoy landscaping. And you, you you get set up with everything. I mean you got the safety goggles on and you're you're cutting and you can barely hear things and there's dust everywhere. Or let's just say biology is working and, and you have to freshen yourself in the, the, the little boys or the little ladies' room. And as soon as you get into whatever it is that you're 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 doing, doggone it. Gotta get undusted and take it off and unplug everything and get the sawdust off or come around the house and put my tools away or um, get decent to prepare to to meet somebody. There's a phrase that we use for that. It's called, and it's not a nice phrase, okay? So moms and dads, excuse me. It's called getting caught with your, see, nobody even wants to say it because you're in church. Getting caught with your pants down, all right? And that's not just bathroom humor. That's not it it just it means you're you're caught unprepared you're doing one thing something else is getting ready to happen and you're like oh <laughs> can't be in two places at the same time got to got to hurry you got to get this done jesus is being gracious in telling about his return because he really doesn't he doesn't want us to be caught with our pants down right you know if you always knew where the policeman hid you'd never get a ticket that's why whenever you see the blue lights, even if you're like obeying the law, when the blue lights pop on, you hit the brakes. You're like, oh, oh, well, it wasn't me. Um, why, why do you do that? Because you're caught with your pants down. Jesus doesn't want that. No no parent wants their kid to get caught in a situation that they're not prepared for. Uh, God as a father doesn't want that either. He says this out of grace to prepare us. And says he's bringing a reward. Now, let's be real clear here. When we talk about the reward that Jesus brings, the reward is not salvation. Um, he says, I'm bringing a recompense. I'm bringing a reward for what everyone has done. The salvation that God gives us is a gift that Christ has accomplished. We don't earn it. We just receive it by faith. The reward is not evangelism, not the gospel, not, 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 um, not salvation. What, what, he is, what he is rewarding us is really based upon our discipleship. What have we done based upon what he has given us? And so it's kind of like Christmas, your kid gets a new toy, and then he like promptly puts it in his closet and never plays with it. You're like, dang, does he know how much those Legos cost? Legos are expensive. Does he know how much that bike cost or whatever that thing is? And then for like the first five minutes, it's really cool, but then it goes in the scrap pile with everything else, and it just doesn't get used. As a parent, you're like, oh man, I really thought he was going to love that, and then he doesn't do anything with it. It's the same thing with our salvation. We don't earn it. We don't deserve it. We don't don't get credit for it. It is given to us as a gift. What we do do in response to God's gracious invitation is we, we try to obey his commands. We try to love him. We try to look like him. We allow his spirit to transform us. It's not an issue of simply flesh and blood, human desire. It's something that the spirit undergirds, the word informs, the people of God encourage, and we start walking a new path. And so he's saying that there are rewards for us not not salvation. Salvation is a gift. There are rewards based upon what we do with what God has entrusted us, and there's all kinds of scriptures that talk about this. You'll see this on the, uh, you'll see this on the uh, screen behind us, but especially in the Corinthian correspondence, 1 Corinthians, um, chapter three. If I can get there, First Corinthians chapter three, verses eleven through fifteen. <clears throat> it says this for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid which is Jesus Christ. Now if anyone builds on that foundation with gold silver precious stone or with wood hay and straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day of judgment will disclose it because it will be it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives he will receive a reward. if anyone's work is burned up he will suffer loss though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. He uses an analogy. It says that our life is like a house, and the foundation upon which we build is the cornerstone. It's Jesus Christ. But then our discipleship, how conscientiously we try to obey, how we try to learn new things, how we try to put it into practice, how we allow the Spirit to transform our life is the act of discipleship. And There, there are different qualities of workmanship. Uh, you know when, when somebody comes to your house or you're looking for something, um, you're going to go buy a TV. You're like, I don't want the cheapest thing. I don't want the most expensive thing. I want something kind of middle of the road, you know? Um, uh, dishwasher. I don't want the cheapest thing. I don't want the most expensive thing. I want something kind of in the middle. It's kind of like that with the discipleship. You, you, It's a choose your own adventure. I mean, you you have the ability to really charge hard or you get the opportunity to be kind of lazy. And the Bible says people that are charging hard, people really trying to honor God, are building their house with all kinds of precious materials, things that endure, things that will... Uh, Last through the fire. It uses specifically the idea of, uh, what was it? It was gold or uh, precious stones or silver. And then there are people that are really lazy in their discipleship and they're using wood and hay and straw. Well, when the fire comes, the foundation is unassailable. The foundation's good. They're saved. There's just not much reward because there's nothing left over after the day of judgment. You were saved, but as one who passed through the fire... There's not a whole lot to, not a whole lot left over. Second Corinthians chapter five, verses nine and ten, he says this. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. Here's the challenge. Let's say you know uh, Jason Hauser's from Idaho. So let's say, um, let's say you go to Idaho. There's nobody that knows you. You can live however the heck you want. You should still be a Christian you should still act like it. Just because you're not at home and nobody knows you, you should have enough integrity to still live because Jesus is king everywhere, even in Idaho, right? You know, he's still the king there. He's Lord of lords uh, every square inch of this planet. So whether at home or abroad, we make it our aim, he says, we make it our ambition. It's our desire to please him. That's great. I mean, that that is... That is having a consistent testimony. Not that you live one way on Sunday and you live however the heck you want the rest of the week. You are Sunday and Monday through Saturday the same person, at home and abroad the same person. You make it your ambition to please Him. Verse 10, He gives the the reason. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due Him for what He has done in the body, whether good or evil. It's the same thing that He said in 1 Corinthians 3. It's just not pictured with an analogy. He says, we make it our ambition to please him because we're all going to stand before God and give account for what we've done in the body, whether good or evil. Jesus says his return is imminent and with it are rewards for what we have done with the gospel that he has planted as a foundation in our life. How are you building? You build a little lean-to, discipleship lean-to, or a discipleship mansion? You're really building with something that is, if someone had to evaluate your relationship with Christ, would they say that it's worth much to you? Are you living in a hovel? Are you living in a shack? Are you really trying to really build your life and make it really clear that this is what your life is built around? He goes on to describe himself. Jesus describes himself, and to to put it mildly, he is described incredibly and is indescribably glorious. We see this in verses 13 and 16. He says, "'I am the Alpha and the Omega.'" The first and the last, the beginning and the end, verse 16. I, Jesus, have sent my messenger to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. He uses all of these incredible titles to describe who Jesus is. He says, I'm the Alpha and the Omega. It sounds like something out of, um, you know, the Transformer movie. He's Alphatron and Omegatron. He's the first and the last, the beginning and the end. And this is not just a lesson in the Greek alphabet. There's nothing special about the Greek language. He's just saying he is beyond the universe's beginning and he is beyond the universe's end. It will come to, it came to a beginning at some point and before that was God. It will come to an end at some point and there will still be God. He is the creator of everything. He is the consummator of everything. And when he says, I'm the alpha and the omega, the beginning, the end, the first and the last, it's interesting that word for last is the Greek word eschaton, from which we get the word eschatology, the study of the last things. So people know, "I, I really enjoy the study of eschatology they have no idea what eschatology means. Eschatology is the study of the last things, study of the end times. Jesus says, I'm the the proto times. I'm the eschaton times. I'm everything. He says, I am the, he says, I'm the root and the descendant of David. This is, this is crazy. All right. He's the root. Okay. The root is that thing under the ground from which the fruit is produced. So he says, the reason David existed is I'm his root. I'm his source. Like David derives his life from me. I created David, but I'm also his descendant. I'm his progeny. Like, mind-blowing. But Jesus didn't exist to the incarnation. Fooey. He's God. He existed forever. He just was not incarnate. So he is David's son. He is David's Lord. He says, I am the morning star. Morning star is a reference to Numbers chapter 24. Balaam was hired by Israel's enemies to curse them. And and God's blessing was so prevalent upon God's people that when he opened his mouth to curse them, he prophesied blessings for them. And he said, I see from this people one day a bright morning star rising from this this people. It's an Old Testament reference to the incarnation of Christ. He's described as incredible, glorious. So why should we respond to his invitation? Not only because his return is quick, it's coming, and not only because there are rewards that he brings with him on his return, but because this second subpoint is worth it in and of itself. He's glorious. He's incredible. He's the Alpha and the Omega. He is your Creator. He is your Judge. He's the one that you will stand before, whether you want to or not. Hey, my God, not going to judge me. No, He is your God. He is going to judge you. What you what you want to argue against? You can use as many words as you want. You're still going to stand before him. You're still going to have to wrestle with this one. He goes on to say, uh, another reason to respond to his invitation is that his fellowship, being in fellowship with him, brings tremendous blessings with it. We see this in verse 14. uh, These tremendous blessings. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Sounds like the Sermon on the Mount. Beatitudes, blessed are, blessed are, blessed are, blessed are. There are seven Beatitudes actually in the book of Revelation, just nobody ever talks about those because they're not in the Sermon on the Mount. This is the seventh of his seven Beatitudes in Revelation. There's another one, verse 7, we're going to look at here in just a second. But in verse 14, he says, If you have fellowship with me, <clears throat> if you have washed your robes, we know from otherwhere oh, in the book, uh, I think chapter 7, verse 14, we're told that we wash our robes in the blood of the Lamb. That sounds freaky. It sounds weird. Like, I don't recommend on your laundry day, whenever that is, going and getting like a bucket full of blood, putting it in the, you know, place where the laundry detergent goes and expecting your clothes to come out like shiny white. Not going to happen. But spiritually speaking, the Bible describes all of humanity as being clothed with filthy rags. And, and in, a, in a mysterious way that we don't understand, by having faith in Christ, That is like the act of washing your dirty robes in the blood of the Lamb, the blood of Christ, and what comes out doesn't make any sense. It's perfect. It's laundered better than anything you could have ever done. It's not dingy. And so he describes this incredible blessing, and the blessings are twofold. He says they have access. That's an important word. They have access. You know, when you go to the beach, I know everybody's going to Myrtle Beach at some point this summer. If you've got a beach, if you've got a hotel on the beach, it's usually got a fence around it. Why? Because if you ain't paying for the hotel, they don't want you swimming in their pool. Now that doesn't stop me sometimes, but um, there's, there's a code or there's a, there's a key that you have to have to be granted access. And the idea is if you're not a paying customer, you don't have access. What he's saying here is that you are granted access to the Tree of Life and you are given permission to go in and out of the city. The city is yours. It's God's tree, it's God's city. But because you have, pay attention to this, fulfilled the condition, washed your robes, because you've trusted Christ, he's now adopted you, and because you belong to his family, you have access to everything that he has access to. There's always a condition. There's glorious blessings and promises, but there are conditions. Verse 14, wash your robes. Wash your robes. Verse 7, look back at that. Chapter 22, Jesus says again, Behold, I'm coming soon. Blessed is the one. Another beatitude. Blessed is the one who does what? Keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. There's a condition. Where's the blessing come from? There's a blessing that comes. The condition is keeping his word. The condition is washing your robe. Fourth and finally, he says, the fourth compelling reason, and this is great, he desires us. He wants us to be there. Now, I don't know if you have had just a really junky week. Has anybody told you that they love you this week and, like, meant it? You know, sometimes, like, that word becomes really cheap. Hey, love you, love you too. You know, it just kind of rolls off. And that doesn't mean it doesn't mean something. But if somebody said, you know, I, I think it's possible in this day and age, is fractured and is, we have more social media, we're more connected, and we're lonelier than we've ever been. I think it's possible for someone to go through an entire week without really feeling desired by anybody. Am I, am I way off base? Do you think that's possible? you think it's possible to be in a room full of people and still be as lonely as I'll get out? The Bible says Jesus wants us. He desires us to be there. And you find it hidden in verse 16. It's not explicit, but he says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel, my messenger, to testify to you, John, about these things for the churches. The churches. God's plan. Huh? There's there are some theology out there that makes it sound like God had a plan A that went horribly and terribly wrong. And then he needed to come up with plan B, the church, so that people could be in a right relationship with him. That's bad theology. Okay? Let, let, me, let me prove it to you really quickly with a Bible story you're probably familiar with. Abraham lived far before the law was ever given, law was given through Moses. Abraham is the father of faith. Abraham is uh, tested by God to sacrifice his son, Isaac. Not really for him to actually sacrifice his son, but for Abraham to be willing to recognize a principle that that's exactly, that God would sacrifice his son for the salvation of people. There would be a substitute. We deserve to die, but there would be a substitute for us. And the point is, from the early point of Genesis, That salvation by law or by works was never God's plan. Salvation by Christ was. God's plan was always to save people through Jesus. That's it. So the church is plan A. There is no plan B. And there are ways that we can see the church, faithful Jews, in the Old Testament. It's not until Acts that we see it explicitly and blatantly. But God's plan was always to save people through his church. And he says, hey, that's my church. My church! And I want it to know what's about to happen. I want it to know what's right. I want them to be there with me. So Jesus commissions his messenger to comfort, to encourage, and to warn his people. Like he doesn't say, hey, I got some awesome, awesome stuff for you, but you got to find it. You got to figure it out all on your own. No, he he gives us his word inspired by his spirit meant to be read and understand, understood and loved and obeyed among his people, his spirit, his word, his people, so that we can walk together. Listen, life is lonely enough to walk together, to understand that he has desired us. God desires, the Bible says, God desires for all people to be saved and to come to knowledge of the truth. Two statements there. He desires all to be saved he desires all to come to knowledge of the truth. Jesus wants everyone to be in a right relationship with him. But he wants he wants to magnify and glorify the sacrifice of his son, and so the way for all to be saved is to come through Christ. Nobody wants to go to hell. Everybody wants to go to heaven, but not everybody wants Jesus. If there's a way that I can get there without Jesus, yes, that's what I want. God says, "No, no, no. I want everyone to be saved." But they have to come to the knowledge of the truth, but they need the sacrifice of my son in order to wash their robes in the blood of the Lamb, in order to obey my word to get there. God desires us and to know the truth. What we've seen here is a beautiful picture about. Uh, Jesus in this very last, his very last words in all of the Scripture, and while it's predominantly about him, his invitation and his compelling reasons about why we should come because he desires us, because he has his return is imminent, because he has blessings that he wants to give on us. There's incredible fellowship. This message has a very timely message for us too. And so the question is, what is this specially delivered message to us? He wraps this up in, in four quick verses, and it's it, it is crazy to say this, but Jesus very. Lovingly, and ironically, ironically, asks us to please listen. Please listen. Now, here's a quick Bible trivia question: Does Jesus need to ask please about anything? Not even in the South. No. King of Kings, Lord of Lords, does not have to say please. If that offends your Southern genteel culture, I'm sorry. King of kings, creator, judge, consummator of all things. He does not have to say please. And yet he says, please listen. His message to us, verse 15, he warns us about the threat of exclusion. Perhaps the dirtiest four-letter word in our society, exclusion. But yet he warns of it. In verse 14, he says, Oh, how blessed are those who wash the robe. Access to the tree of life. They can come and go from the city freely. Verse 15, Outside the city are the dogs, the sorcerers, the sexually immoral murderers, idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices, falsehood, what a terrible contrast, those who have washed their robes in and out, access to the tree, and these who are permanently excluded. Here's the point that he he makes here. Every mom and maybe even grandma has uh, warned their grandkids of this. If you make funny faces, or you, you... make mean faces, um, your mom will warn you, if you keep doing that, what's going to happen? Absolutely. So it started with you, you know? If you keep doing that, your face is going to freeze that way. Jesus is just saying the same thing. He's saying be very careful of the pattern you set because at some point the pattern you set will be irreversible. You will freeze that way for eternity. And it's not just having a goofy goofy look on your face. It's that you will inherit what you say you don't want, but you have lived and chased after and pursued your entire life. Listen, no, this is going to sound really weird. Nobody goes to hell who doesn't really want to be there. And nobody goes to heaven who don't want to be there either. You know, God's not going to save you against your desires. Well, I don't want to wear a diaper and play a harp for eternity. Number one, there's all kinds of Problems right there. You know, that's not what heaven's going to be like. And You know, I don't want to be saved, but I prayed that prayer when I was seven. So God's obli- No, that's not it. It is not a chance. It's not a mantra. Um, it has to do with your heart. So you can say the words and still be headed straight to hell. You can pray the prayer. You can walk the aisle. If it's not issued from your heart, your desire, doesn't mean anything. So he's warning here about this, this contrast, about freezing in that position. If you're not washed, no tree of life. If you're not washed, you don't get in. Terrible picture of exclusion. And the only thing that's more terrible about being excluded is who you're excluded with. You won't be with these people. Terrible, terrible, car- terrible company. There's a Farside cartoon. I don't know if any of you, um, some of you may not be old enough to remember Farside. It was the best cartoon ever created, okay, in my humble opinion. Great. Gary Larson was incredible. And he had, it's a this is not a good cartoon, but it's a cartoon of hell. And um, Satan and his demons are all in the office of hell. And you can see through the window in the office door, the flames and a bunch of people. And the, Satan and his demons are laughing because they're looking through um, pieces of paper that have been put in the suggestion box. There's no suggestion box in hell. Hey, can you turn the temperature down a little bit? Can we get something besides jello in the cafeteria line? And the idea is that everybody out there thinks that they actually get to make suggestions about what hell is going to be like. That's funny. And it's not. Jesus is warning that, oh, he is inclusive. Remember his gracious invitation? Who can come? Whoever's thirsty can come. Does everybody make it? Nope. And I think those people who have all their works burnt up because they're stubble and hay and wood really are going to regret that they didn't do more in life. Number two, he warns us against the threat of exclusion. Number two, he warns us about the danger of reinterpretation. Verses 18 and 19. I want everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. If anyone takes away from the words of the prophecy of this book, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city which are described in this book. We take this and we apply it to the entire Scripture, and I think that's okay by extrapolation. It applies applies specifically and um, uh, explicitly to the book of Revelation. And he's saying, guys, listen carefully. Don't ignore it. Don't disregard it. Don't reinterpret it. And, you know, here's, here's the danger. Every single one of you reinterpret Scripture to make you look like the hero of the story. Oh, I'm not as bad as somebody else. There is one hero of the story. His name is Jesus. It's not you. Don't reinterpret scripture to make yourself look like a better person. The Bible says you're not. I'm not. None of us are. We're sinners. We're wicked. We're evil. He says, listen carefully. Hide God's word in your heart. Why? So you don't sin against him. Love is word. It's ancient copyright law. Hey, this is my word. Don't change it. And and unfortunately, if if God was litigious, we would all be sued for changing God's word. Now you don't actually change the words; you just change how it applies. Oh yeah, I don't like that verse. I'm not going to live that one out. But yeah, this one. Yeah, I like that one. No, no, don't do it. Don't reinterpret it. Don't don't disregard it. Don't change it. And then in verse 20, finally, his his last way that he is warning us to please listen is is the threat of exclusion the danger of doing something with God's word that you're not supposed to. And then finally, in, in a weird way, he warns us about his return. Like, Why would he do that? Isn't that like happy day? Isn't that great and glorious? Verse 20, he who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. To which John says, oh yeah, amen. Come Lord Jesus. And that day, this final warning in all of Scripture is meant to make you think about this, okay? So for those of you trying to get your mind around, Jesus' return is imminent, okay? Here's, here's another humdinger. Jesus' return is right now closer than it has ever been. I freak you out to think about that? <clears throat> I don't know how old you were when you began your relationship with Christ. Do you know how much closer Jesus' return is now than it was then? Jesus' return is closer now than it was at the beginning of a worship service. And yet we delay our obedience. Oh, next week. Yeah, yeah, I need to talk to my co-worker. Here's, here's what's terrible. You want to know how, how little you know? You don't know how long you have, and you certainly don't know how long your, your target is. Whoever is that person that God has put on your heart, yeah, yeah, yeah. Next week, next week, next week, I'll try it. And then you're fine and dandy two weeks from now. You're healthy, and they're dead. Hit by car. Dealing with a serious health issue, a heart attack, something of that sort. And so when he warns of his return, he's saying, Listen, my return is imminent, but even if there is any delay, it should not lead to idleness on your part. Don't think that you can wait till tomorrow to make right what you know you need to make right today. Listen, I, I hope y'all are here next week. I'll be heartbroken if anybody isn't. And not just like you're on vacation, but have fun on vacation. You're not going to break my heart if you're on vacation. Spend time with your family. If somebody is not here because they're not here, that'd be a terrible thing. And he's warning us that this event that will bring unspeakable joy to his faithful followers will bring inconsolable sorrow to others. And whether you are looking forward expectantly, whether you are building with cheap materials, or whether you're not building at all, Jesus has warned all. He says, behold, I'm coming soon. Verse 12, verse 20, surely I am coming Soon, he has warned believers and unbelievers that there is a day that is coming, and we don't know when it is, in which he will judge the living and the dead. May we be ready for it. Father, we thank you for giving us your word to warn and to encourage, to point us uh, to our need. We are so full of ourselves that we think we are self-sufficient. Father, I pray that you bring us to the end of that. We're not smart enough. We're not, <clears throat> we're not good enough. We're not wise enough. We're not morally pure enough. We're not anything enough. And yet the delusion that we are all under in our rebellion against our Creator is to think that we are enough. I pray that you remove that delusion from us and that you help us to understand that you are the only source for the living water that we so desperately want. That there is nothing else in life that can satisfy us apart from a true living a relationship with our Savior. Father, we pray that you just convict us and help us to do today what we know that we need to do. Father, if there's any here that, that do not know, uh, beyond the shadow of a doubt that they're in a relationship with you, may we have the uh, pray that you will embolden them, that we can have a conversation, talk after the service, wait till everybody leaves and talk about whatever heart issues are kind of rolling around in their their heart and their mind. Father, for the rest of us, help us to consider how we're building and whether we are working heartily as for the Lord and not just for men. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.